This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. If a product is seen as incomplete, half a sandwich, say, people consume more of it. Wharton's Barbara Kahn explains the lessons that can be drawn from this for branded consumer goods. Our guest today is Barbara Kahn, professor of marketing at Wharton and director of the J.H. Baker Retailing Center. She's also chair of the High Velocity Growth Summit, a conference on the retail and consumer packaged goods industries that Knowledge at Wharton is organizing in collaboration with the Baker Retailing Center on April 28th and 29th. Barbara, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. So we are here to talk about your research. And and one of the papers that you have written recently uh, in collaboration with your colleague, Julio Servia, uh, is about the notions of a product's completeness and how they affect perceptions, preferences, and even purchase decisions of buyers. Uh, What was the question you were trying to investigate in this research? Well, one of the things that we know is that way people decide what to buy and what to eat and how much to eat is not necessarily based on objective measures, but it's based more on their perceptions of how things work, look, etc. And one of the big findings in the literature before we did our study was that product shape and size, uh, package shape and size affects how much people consume. So there's been previous work that shows that holding the size of 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 a product the same but changing its shape can influence how much people eat. And we were interested in how whether or not you think the unit is complete um, versus an incomplete shape, whether or not that affects how much you eat. Um, so, so just to make sure I got it right, if I were to take a bag of cashews and I were to eat a lot of the broken cashews at the bottom of the bag, would I be right to be not feel guilty regardless of how much I consume because I think I haven't eaten the whole unit? Right, yeah. So that's the idea. So whenever you eat a whole thing, you think like you're the, – the, the process underlying is when it's a whole thing, you feel like you're eating more. Um, even if the amount is the same as a broken piece. So if you ate a whole pretzel, you'd be aware that you ate a whole pretzel, whereas if you ate a whole bunch of pieces, you're not aware of how much quantity you're eating. One of the things I found fascinating in your research is how, how do you exactly decide whether a product is complete or not? Well, that is the interesting thing. And we do show that you can manipulate what the expectation is and change people's behavior. So, for example, we did a study in, in this search where we had rolls or we had cheese. And the, and the roll was incomplete because there was a hole in it. And the cheese was incomplete because there were holes in the cheese. And so it wasn't a solid piece of bread or a solid piece of cheese. When we just called it a roll or cheese, then people thought the ones with the hole in it were less complete and they did what I said. They tended to consume more of the holy bread. On the other hand, if we set the expectation that it was a bagel or that it was Swiss cheese and then their thought, a whole bagel has a hole in it, that reversed the findings. How did you go about conducting your research? Well, we did a lot of the research online with, you know, assume if, if this was what it looked like, you know, how much do you think you'd eat, how much do you think you'd pay for it. But we did run what I thought was really interesting and helped validate the research. We ran a field study. 
And in that field study, we did it. Uh, we did it down in Miami, and it was for a class of people who were going for a health MBA course. And interestingly, they were physicians and health professionals. So they were senior, sophisticated people who understand health. And we had a condition where we had um, two classes, and they either ate lunch in classroom A or classroom B. And what they had for lunch were sandwiches that were either cut in half or they were whole. Now, we held constant in each one of these, the amount of bread, the amount of meat, the amount of everything. And, and we also just counted how many sandwiches they ended up eating. We were careful so that a, a normal portion size would be more than one, because there's also some kind of bias called the unitary bias, where you might just take one of something. So these were small sandwiches, and so people would naturally take more than one. And what we found is when we held everything constant, but we cut the sandwich in half versus the sandwich was a whole, people ate more sandwiches when they were cut in half. And mind you, these were doctors and health professionals that were liable to fall for this bias as well. Interesting. Uh, and, and what would you say were some of the main takeaways of, of your research? The main takeaway, I mean, there's public policy takeaways and then there's marketing takeaways. Basically, we add to this growing literature, and there are others who found these kinds of things. Another big finding that people found is primary dimension. And, and that's um, what people do is they focus on the primary dimension of the product, and they do insufficient adjustment for the secondary dimension. So if something has a long primary dimension and a small secondary dimension, but it's the same size as something that had a little bit smaller primary dimension and a bigger secondary dimension, so they were holding these things constant. They overweight the primary dimension. So that's similar to ours, where they overweight the completeness. And basically what it shows is that people are not normative decision makers. They don't eat what they think they eat, need to eat to feel full. They eat what they perceive is the right amount, and they use these implicit rules for deciding how much to eat. So it suggests that it, these things can um, backfire, boomerang, we call it. So for example, there's other research, not mine, but it's related, where they show sometimes if people eat in a 100-calorie pack or something like that, they can end up eating more because their perceptions of how much they ate or something is based on the package or the shape of the product, not how full they feel. Uh, now, <clears throat> uh, based on what you said so far, uh, I, I guess the food industry and the beverage industry is is probably uh, 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 the most interested or, or most uh, would be most affected by the findings of your research. Are there any other industries that that also uh, would uh, where consumer preference would be affected by yeah, notions of completeness? And it's hard for me to think offhand, but theoretically, certainly, it should be. What's, what we find is it affects choice, and more importantly, probably, is that it affects consumption. And what the difference is, is choice tends to be a more mindful, we call system two thinking kind of decision, whereas consumption is more of a mindless kind of decision. And so these things that are subtle and perception changes tend to affect the consumption decision. And that tends to be more true in food. You know, a lot of, like when you buy clothing, you know, it's more of a conscious decision what you're buying. Um, but it's anything that has some kind of mindless consumption pattern, you'd find that these things would hold. Let's now to some of, turn to some of your other research in other areas. Uh, you, you were just telling me about uh, a new research uh, paper you've done on, uh, on, on, on online and offline uh, uh, perceptions. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what was the issue you were trying to uh, investigate there? 
Yeah. So what we're what we're what I'm generally interested in is this. There's kind of a cottage industry of research that looks at this. Is well now we have online assortments, and it's true also in category killers and offline. We can have a lot of variety. And there's uh, a lot of research that's shown that there's such a thing as too much variety. If you go into a, an assortment and there's so much going on there that you can't take it all in, some research will show that people will choose not to choose because they're just overwhelmed by all the choices. And so what I'm interested in is how, I, I think choice is good though. I think that what differentiates some retailers online and offline is to offer a wide variety of choices. So what I'm interested in is how can we get consumers to pay attention to the variety so that it's not overwhelming and they can take it in. And I've done several studies along that. And the metric that I'm really interested in, or the measure that I'm really interested in is attention. And we can now measure that because of eye tracking. We, we have eye tracking, we have an eye tracking lab here at Wharton where we can put people in front of computers and see exactly what they're looking at. We can also give people goggles and have them walk up and down a, um, a, a real store and see what they're looking at. So we can see how we can make changes on the shelf and how that affects their attention patterns. Similarly, if you're buying online, I can you know, put the storefront or whatever on a computer and I can see how you're scanning that computer screen. So some of the things that I've done, one of the things I did, and when we do experiments, what I want to do is hold everything constant so I can say, I know for sure this is what happened. And so one of the things that we looked at is how do people pay attention differentially to an assortment if it's depicted visually or if it's depicted by words, holding everything constant. So that makes it a little less realistic, but I can then make these generalizations. And what were some of your main findings here? So with the visual, what we found is if I gave people a choice, would you like to see the assortment shown visually or described by words? An overwhelming majority would prefer it visually. And we tried all sorts of ways to try to get them not to prefer visual because I wanted to find a boundary condition. So like you'd assume for something that's a very aesthetic category, visual, of course, you'd rather see. But what about a category like mutual funds? If I could show it visually, people would prefer to see mutual funds visually. So it's kind of surprising how strong the preference was for visual depiction. What we found was when the assortment was depicted visually versus verbally, people perceived there was more variety in general. That was the main effect. And you can kind of understand why that was, because you can take in more of the attributes at once. You can see the interactions better, whereas when it's verbal, it's kind of piecemeal the way you process it. So you tend to see more variety when it's visual versus verbal, and people prefer. It's emotionally nicer. They like variety. They prefer to see it in uh, visual versus verbal. And when the assortment is manageable, visual is preferable because it's, you know, they like it better, you can take all the variety in, it's nice. When the assortment gets really large, what we found with the eye tracking is that people can't take in all that variety visually. And what they tend to do, when we know this from eye tracking, is they tend to like kind of glaze over and look haphazardly, randomly over the visual assortment. And as a result of that, they miss certain items and it becomes more complex and they're more willing to not make a choice. On the other hand, if the assortment's really large and I depict it verbally, they may not like it as much, but the only way they can take in that information is to spend a little bit more time and they tend to look a little more systematically. So the net result of that is they take in more variety and they're more willing to make a choice. 
Oh, that's fascinating. So uh, two follow-up questions on that. First, what do you think would be the implications for, say, a company like Amazon, which is the, now calls itself the world's biggest retailer, right, and, and has an immense variety of products all depicted online? What, what would, how, how would your research be relevant to a retailer of that type? So... Amazon sells anything, so anything that's depicted online would be relevant. I, I haven't done research specifically with Amazon, but I have looked at some results like with Campbell's Soup and with other packaged goods, and it would be the same thing with anything, is what we found is when people, like what happens with, say, Campbell's Soup, you go to your favorite soup, chicken noodle, and you buy chicken noodle. Now, Campbell's has lots of variety. What they want you to do is appreciate all that variety. If what we found with goggles is if they look at just the pictures, people glance over and they don't take in all the variety. When we can get them to look at the labels, the names, they read it. And then they see there's chicken noodles, chicken stars, chicken whatever. But you have, you can, can you picture what I'm saying? Like, you'll just glaze it if you're looking at the picture, but if you're reading, you'll... So, like, that's what we know with packaged goods. I talked to a sports retailer, I forget which one, but they told me, like, with athletic clothes, people buy black. They buy black all the time. But if you just had black on the shelf, people wouldn't see all the different shapes and sizes you have. So what some of the retailers do, and you can imagine this online also, is they insert, like, pink and orange. Not because they think people are going to buy that, but because it gives them something to pay attention to, and then you appreciate the different variety that's there. So what you've got to do is get people to stop and pay attention to certain things, or else they kind of glaze over. I was also wondering how your research would relate to, uh, say, a company like Walmart, uh, which, again, a huge retailer, uh, but it's not, unlike sports goods, it's, it's a wide variety of products. How, how, how would they be, uh, how could they use your findings? Well, I mean, so I'm just looking at visual versus verbal, and I'm looking at an attention getter when there's a wide variety of stopping to read and things. But you can imagine doing more and more research on this, and with these goggles, you can watch people walk. So what we know is if you're in a big store like a Walmart with all this variety everywhere, it kind of looks like this mountain of product, and what you see is maybe what's on the end aisle or under the for sale sign or something. And so what you want to understand is how can we set up a store so that people take in all the variety that's there, especially when you have your inventory out there on a shelf. I was thinking about, uh, just recently, I went downtown. There's a store downtown that used to have Ann Klein, which was clothing. It now is Stuart Weitzman, which is shoes. The same exact physical space, but the space is used differently. In Ann Klein, they keep all the inventory out, right? So all the dress sizes, all the blouses, all the different things, they're out. There's no back room, really. But if you think about a store, a shoe store, they have just a few shoes out, and all the inventory is hidden in the back. And so you think about just that different configuration of a store, how much variety you're going to take in is really different. And I never really thought about it till I saw the exact same physical space used a really different way. That's fascinating. And, and one, one more of your uh, papers is about the horizontal uh, versus vertical uh, uh, dimensions of, of uh, product uh, placement. Can you speak a little bit to, to that research? And yeah, that's also we used eye tracking and we had some theory on the theory of attention and perception. So to get at that research, we 
first stipulate, which I think is true, that there's two stages, let's say. There's more than two, but let's start with two stages to your choice process. One stage is when you see the whole category and you kind of scan it quickly. Maybe you're not going to make a purchase. It's three seconds or so and you walk by. The second is when you plant your feet and you're ready to make a choice. Okay, and now you're spending unlimited time. And so we looked at those two stages. And under those two stages, should you do it horizontally or vertically, horizontally or vertically in the two stages. So stage one, three seconds. You're just scanning there. What we found is because your eyes are horizontal, um, you, the, you can see things that are horizontally more easily. We call that higher perceptual fluency. So when things are horizontal and you're looking very quickly, you take in more variety when they're horizontal than vertical because it's harder to see vertical because of the physical way your, your eyes are. And so the result of that is if things are across a horizontal row and you're going past it quickly, whether online or in the store, you think there's more variety. You remember more variety when it's horizontal than when it's vertical. Now, when you get to the choice, that's no longer the case because I'm spending enough time to look at it. The quickness or the ease of looking at it is not a relevant thing. But now what happens is there's another perceptual, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you take the same line that's vertical and you take that same line horizontal, people always think that the vertical is longer than the same length line that's horizontal. So what that perceptual says is, that perceptual bias says is when things are horizontal, you think they're closer together. We also know when you think things are closer together, you think they're more similar. So when you're evaluating things, if you don't have clear preferences, the things that are horizontal are seen as closer together and more equal in preference. And so you're more likely to say pick one up or more of them horizontally. When you see them vertically, they seem more further apart. There seems to be an order to it more when it's horizontal when it's vertical. And so you tend to pick one, whereas this way you tend to pick more than one. And so what we find in general is things horizontally, you tend to pick more variety, you see more variety quickly, and when you evaluate, you think they're more acceptable op options. And when it's vertical, you tend to pick one. And anecdotally, I think retailers know this, I've looked at the stores and I've looked at a lot of convenience stores, what they tend to stack horizontally are things where you're going to take more flavors. What they tend to stack vertically is good, better, best, or best, better, good, you know, kind of like that. And then the notion is you're going to take one when it's vertical, and when it's horizontal, you take more than one. And so what my research has done is the retailers have kind of figured that out by trial and error. They don't care why, they just know it works. But what I do back in the lab is to figure out how you pay attention and your resulting perceptions is part of why you see that effect. Because there's no reason at, you know, thinking about in advance why something would be horizontal or vertically. What's really interesting about what you said is that in addition to retailers, there are also companies that, like Netflix, uh, you know, that show thousands of film titles horizontally and, and different categories of f film types vertically. That, uh, that also can have a tremendous bearing on, on, on what you just said. Yeah, you see, and like it could be the other way around. But over time, they figured out it worked this way. And I'm just saying, yes, that's right. Because you tend to pick more than one in a particular category, and you choose one or another category. See, that's, that's exactly the same thing. And what I think is so interesting is retailers frequently, they're too busy. They just want to know what's worked. They do A-B testing, or this ad works better than that ad, and they don't know why. And so a lot 
lot of times it's very reassuring to see the results that I find in the lab validated by real world stuff. And what I can add to them is, I know why that's working that way. And it's important because when you're going into new types of retailing, so you're going into shopping online or these omni-channel things, you want to know is what worked offline going to work online? If you understand why it worked offline, then you can make the adjustment more appropriately to these new formats. Uh, so we've talked about uh, three of your really uh, interesting research papers. Any uh, future research projects that you're working on that, uh, that uh, based on some of the findings of these research papers? Yeah, I really am interested in how the process goes, you know, now in this new omni-channel world. So what's happening now is we know there's stages to the purchase process. You know, you have an idea, you want to fill something, you, you, know, you search for information, you evaluate the options, you make a choice, you use the product. So there's all these different stages. In traditional research, you did a lot, I mean, retailing, in traditional retailing, you made the decisions in store and then you took them home. So there was in store and there was at home. That was it. But now, it's a 24-7 world. You might look on your phone for one. You might look on the computer for something else. You might go into the physical store for something else. So you have all these different stages that can be in all different channels. And I'm curious to know how separating the, ch the stages by channel, by time, affects decision making. So I'm working on a project, and we started with Warby Parker as an example. Warby Parker, the eyeglass retailer, started by four Wharton students. Um, what you do in Warby Parker, uh, they've changed it now because they've opened real stores, but originally you made the decision online. You looked at this big assortment, you waited a couple days, and you got five pairs to try on at home. So what I was interested in was that separation between making your decision online, having to wait a couple days to get the physical glasses, how did that time between the two stages affect your decision making? So we're in the process of doing that research now, and we're finding counter to what people might think, the delay between the two stages may not be bad, it may be a good thing. Well, perhaps the <clears throat> High Growth Velocity Conference, where War Warby Parker is going to be one of the participants, might be a good way to continue this conversation further. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.